Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Spring is finally here. Memorial Day is down the street and summer is right around the corner. It's time to think about shorts, picnics, trips to the park or beach, and that all-important summer reading list. We've already introduced you to some great authors and books, including J.P. Howard, Eric Darnell Pritchard, and two books from poet scholar Alexis Pauline Gums. Today, I'm joined by Lorraine Orlando Childry, author of Peeling Back the Layers, a story of trauma, grace, and triumph. Originally from Birmingham, Alabama, Lorraine has also lived in Mississippi and now calls Nashville, Tennessee home. Every day, millions of people lose sight of their dreams when life's curveballs knocks them off their feet and out of the game. But that wasn't the case for Lorraine who has endured some of the most horrific trauma imaginable, including childhood sexual abuse, depression, violent and tragic deaths, a crack cocaine addiction, and an HIV diagnosis. Childry beat the odds, returned to college at the age of 40, and became an award-winning and respected news journalist, a dream he'd carried since childhood. While working at Mississippi Public Broadcasting, he won numerous awards for his reporting from the Mississippi Associated Press Broadcasters. He's a National Edward R. Murrow Award-winning journalist. The award is given by the Radio Television Digital News Association, honoring outstanding achievements in electronic journalism. His book, Peeling Back the Layers, a Story of Trauma, Grace, and Triumph was selected as one of the top six autobiographies of 2015 by the Colorado Independent Publishers Association. With the unwavering love and support of his mother and grounded in his faith, Lorraine Orlando Childry demonstrates his ability to persevere during times of immense adversity in this compelling autobiography. Lorraine, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Wow, thank you so much, Michelle. I am great and getting better, and it is so good to hear your voice. And wow, you did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll I tell you, since we've met and, uh, and since reading your book, you know, we met and then I read your book, you know, I, lo- I, I really had one of those immediate connections. And then yeah. I read your book, and it's like our connection deepened. And then we've talked periodically. And, you know, 
when I think about your book, there's so many things that come to mind. And mm-hmm. I've shared bits and pieces of it, you know, with people as I hear them dealing about something I'll tell them or something that either I read or that you've told me about it. Oh, wow. You know, after, you know, you've had time to sit with the book, you know, are there things now that you recognize like, mm, I wish I had, you know, included that or, you know, expanded upon something else since, you know, you, you put that final chapter in? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I, I, in, in the book I talk about how I'm an only child, uh, my mom's mm-hmm. only child. And I talk about my mom a lot in the book, but I never really mentioned my dad, mm. my, bio, my biological dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, after writing this book and having the opportunity to kind of sit with it, um, I started loaning for him, loaning for the father that I never really had. And that's the book that I'm working on now. It's, uh, it's about um, mourning the death of a father that you never really knew. And this is like four years after his death. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish so that did, I would have uh, referred more to my dad in this book. Did you did you have a relationship with him, or was it with somebody who like no. you knew who it was, but you didn't really have a relationship? I had. I tell you what, I met him four times in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Or, or let me let me take that back. I've seen him four times in my entire life. The fourth time was at his funeral. Mm. So, yeah, we never really had a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Although I had a relationship with his, his sisters, my aunts, never had a real mm. relationship with my dad. We tried to kind of forge a relationship in my early 20s, but it didn't work out. I was mm-hmm. still bitter at him, and I guess that he just didn't know how to really approach me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it never really worked out. But since this book and since his death, I really wish that I had tried harder to at least get to know him. Mm-hmm. And uh, just last year, I was in Atlanta visiting with his wife, his his, his wife, and uh, she shared with me some things about him. And I'm a huge music lover, love music, all types of music. And I found out that he is a uh, was an avid music lover as well, loved mm-hmm. all genres of music, just like I do, all genres. And I fell in love with, and I, I can never pronounce her name, so help me out, mm-hmm. Michelle Indi- Indegiocello. Indegiocello, yes. Uh-huh. My uh-huh. dad was a big fan of hers, and I knew some of her music, but not all of it. But I was sitting there with uh, with his with his wife, and she asked me. She said, uh, "She said Jack has some records back there. Um, would you like to to have them?" And I said, "Sure." And one of the records that I pulled out that I that I listened to when I first got in the car, one of the CDs that I listened to when I first got in the car was Michelle's, mm. and. That was so touching for me just to know that he and I shared this eclectic taste in music because he had everything in there now from blues to gospel to jazz to pop to rock. 
and uh, and that's just the way I am today. So, you know, my aunts tell me, you know, you are. This is the this is the the joke in my family. I'm kind of new on the scene, right? I started coming mm-hmm. around my dad's folks uh, when I became an adult. And every time I would walk into a room with his family there, they would all, always say, boy, you just like your daddy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You just like your daddy. You just like your daddy. And, uh, and, you know, I've been trying to get the meaning of that, and I think that I do know the meaning of that. Uh, I look like him. They say I walk like him. Uh, they say we, we talk alike. He loved to cook. I love to eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, uh, I've, since I've had the chance to really sit with it, uh, it's just giving me the understanding of how important it is to tell these stories. Uh, because what I was hearing from my mom was one thing. What I've heard from my aunts was another thing. And even what I've heard from family members on my mom's side is something totally different. And so it's so important that we, you know, get out and share these stories uh, so that we can find the truth somewhere within that, within mm-hmm. those stories. Yeah. Well, well, you know, one of the things that I've learned from your book and event sometimes that I, I tell people about because I have met um, with single mothers and, like, they talk who had their, their child young, like your mom did. Your mom was just 16. And they talk mm-hmm. about, like, some of the things that they've done and, like, you know, and maybe that they weren't always present. And they wonder if they're going to have a good relationship. And I tell them about your relationship with your mother and how you recognize that in some ways you were both growing up together. But then mm-hmm. how you had her unwavering love and she mm-hmm. yours, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and then, you know, and it's interesting because there's that story that you tell, which I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm, I'm able to pick out pieces of your book and talk to different audiences. There's that part. But I've also had people go like, well, you know, I wish he knew his dad or, or I wish my child knew their dad, but they don't do it. But it, like you said, there was ways that even though it wasn't there that later on that you did and you were able to forge that relationship with that part of the of your family that, you know, yes. you were missing. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom and I had a beautiful, beautiful relationship. We were best friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could talk to her about anything. Uh, she could talk to me about anything. And... Um, we we basically grew up together, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I guess that's one of the reasons why we we could be such good friends because we were so close in age, just sixteen years apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I value every every moment that we had together. Mm-hmm. And like I said, and she was in your corner. I mean, it was like you know she was like you said, you had that relationship with her, and I know that even when times were hard, knowing that you had her you know even in a different sense it wasn't like you know a like where some people are dependent upon him but you had her as a friend and someone who was your confidant somebody who supported you you know that really seemed to pull things help you hold it together or overcome which some people might have thought was just like just a you know a hurdle that they just couldn't handle yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, my mom used to always tell me, 
ain't nobody going to treat you like your mama. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I have found that to be so true, you know, because my mom was my best friend, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, we, we just had a bond that couldn't be broken. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and just to know that she was there in my corner meant a, a whole lot. Uh, we're, we're working on a, a movie for the book now. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that the head writer uh, said that drew her to the book was the relationship that I had with my mom mm-hmm. um, down in the book. And I, I may be going too fast because you may be coming no, to No, take your part. time. In the book, uh, when I introduce, well, my mom, when my mom discovers that I'm gay, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tell her. She asks me, are you gay? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, just I'm on the phone one day, you know, listening. I'm, I'm, I'm at home with a friend of mine who happens to be male, and he and I are sitting at the house, chilling, listening to music, uh, enjoying the Sunday afternoon, and I get a phone call. It's my mom, ring, ring, ring. I answer the phone. And uh, it's my mom, and she asked me, she said, do you have company? I said, yeah. She said, is it anyone I know? I said, it's my friend Ray. I don't think you know him. Mm-hmm. She said, um, let me ask you something. Are you gay? <laughs> and I, I sort of laughed and 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 rhetorically, I said, am I gay? And she said, yes, are you gay? And uh, I said, yes. And she told me, she said, I thought so. And so she thought so because every time that she would call, there was always a male at my house, never a female. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought. But in actuality, she had actually read a love letter when I was in high school from a guy that uh, I had met on a a school conference. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of put it in her head. But uh, after she found out I was gay, uh, she asked me, you know, did I have a lover and all of this kind of stuff? And I told her, yes, I do. I have a lover. And I wanted her to meet him. She was living in Memphis at the time. But as soon as she came to Birmingham, I wanted to make sure that she met my lover because I wanted her to see that I was the same son that she raised, uh, you know, from a baby up until that point. Uh, The same son that she loved and the same son that, you know, that she respected. I wanted her to know that I was the same person. And it was important for for her to see that. And when she came down, she met him, and I remember they had great conversation. They were laughing and talking, but at the end of his visit, I remember her taking him by the hand and saying, you be good to him, because if you fuck over him, you're going to have to fuck with me. All right. (laughs) And and isn't that, you know, and how important, I mean, because, that's what, you know, most people that you want, you want that kind of, you want to have that kind of relationship. Many people in, in our LGBTQ community, they don't have, they don't get that affirmation from their parents. 
And I know that one of the things that, that we, I relate to with you, it's funny, I relate to you, but I also relate to your mother because, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, but that, you know, that sort of like that accepting. And, you know, I was telling people, I've had more and more people talk about how, how much it meant when they did have that affirming parent. Because I know that's one of the yeah. things how my mother was. My mother was like that. You know, it's like, you know, like, what are your intentions? And, you know, yes. oh, well, and she, and, and welcoming and liking people. And, you know, if you were right yes. with me, you were right with her, you know? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And that's the, that's the kind of relationship that we had. I remember the first time I took my mom to a, a gay function. It was a little party around the holidays, and mom had come down from, she was living here in Nashville at the time, and she had come down to Birmingham, and she was spending the day with me. I thought she was going to spend the evening with her sister, but uh, the evening came, and she was still there, and friends of mine were gathering because we were going to go to a party. And I couldn't put my mom out. And uh, I said, well, Mom, we're getting ready to go to the party. You want to go with us? Oh, yeah, I want to go. <laughs> now, look, mm-hmm. my mom knew I was gay. She, mm-hmm. had been around my, she had been around my gay friends, you know, my small circle of gay friends. She had been around them. But she had never been to a function with me with other gay people, okay? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm just asking, you know, to be nice. I didn't really mean for her to go, but she <laughs> went. Man, mm-hmm. my mom got to that party. She had a ball. She was the life of the party. She fell in love with the host to the to her to the week that she died. She was still asking about the host of that party. Mm-hmm. She fell in love with them just that much. And so, yeah, man, my mom was really, really cool. I feel really fortunate because, you know, I see a lot of young people and old people who are afraid to come out to their parents or to their loved ones or to their coworkers or anybody. And, um, you know, and that's one of the reasons, too, why I was so willing to share my story because I want people to know that it's not always going to turn out in a negative way. It's not always going to be a bad result. Sometimes you just have to step out on faith and 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 be yourself. You know, I think too. That's the other thing about your book. It is a black family story. You know, like because when your mother had you and your grandparents and your aunt, you know, you were their child. You know, like how you say it takes a village. Well, you had your family village, and you know, that is often the case in black families, you know, where mm-hmm. it wasn't like, you know, like I know that I have a son and I can recall, you know, my grandmother and my mother both, and you know, talking to people and saying, well, it's not like she's the first one. It was like, well, what do we do for this child? And I tell mm-hmm. you how I relate to both be, to you on many ways because I understood that, you know, and like my son sometimes will talk about like, how he was surrounded by these people who loved him. And he said, in some ways, I felt like a little prince. I had all this love from my grandparents, yes. from my aunts. And that comes across in your story. And then your mother 
the challenges that she had and making it, and that, and that you two staying together and supporting it. You know, like you said, a lot of black LGBTQ people don't have that, but a lot of us, it's a black family story. Yes, and it's a story of love. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm so grateful to have that because, like I said, I hear so many stories of people who don't have that kind of support. And, you know, my mother was affectionate. You know, I guess that's where I get it from. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, she was, always, she was always doting on me. Uh, and I think that is part of the thing that brought me back when I had my downfall, just knowing that, you know, that I meant more. Mm-hmm. I, meant, I meant more than what I had fallen into. And I was able to get up from it because of the love that was shown to me by my mom and my family, the support that they gave me. It let me know that I meant more. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and I think that the other thing, you know, because you do talk about the trauma and which many of us understand, but then how you were able to have that, that, that pulled you through, like, you always had that dream from being a little boy of wanting to be a journalist. And Mm -hmm. at a time when many people would have said, you know, I made it through this. What am I going to do now? I'm just going to, you know, chill from here on out. You know, try to Mm -hmm. stay out of trouble. But you said, I'm going to go back to school. And I want to Mm -hmm. be, and I'm, and you pursued your dream. You never gave that up. I never gave it up. And, uh-huh. you know, I remember, I remember when that dream started in third grade. I remember mm-hmm. one of our, my homework assignments. We had to write about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And uh, I remember I wrote that I wanted to work for the, the press. And, mm-hmm. um, and it came to fruition. It took many, 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 many years, but I never lost sight of that dream. And along the way, I discovered my passion and my purpose at an early life, although I had stumbles getting to it. Mm-hmm. But I realized it at an early, early, early age, uh, exactly what I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah and you just had it hung in there. And, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, like I said, there's so many parts because the part that you were able to go back to school at 40, and I know I've met people who have, you know, said, oh, you know, I'm scared about going back to school or I won't be there amongst all these these young people. And you came with, a, with a, some history behind you. When you walked into that classroom, you know, and you're sitting there, you're 40 amongst, you know, these journalism students and you're studying, excuse me, you're doing, you're telling your story. You know, you're, you know that you, you have, life history behind you. So your experience coming from journalism was a little bit deeper than theirs. How do right. you think it, that, that did that, that affect you? Did it make you a more serious student or did it make your teachers look at you differently and hear your, your, your story? Uh, I think I would have to say uh, yes to both of those questions. <laughs> uh, y- yeah. Uh, but but if you remember too, um, yes, I had those those challenges, but I had some even deeper challenges getting into school. 
mm-hmm. because I was 40 years old, but I had just been diagnosed with AIDS. Mm-hmm. I had a T cell count. I had a T cell count of three, and uh, I had a viral load that was off the charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had pneumocystic pneumonia. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it was difficult for me to walk from my front door to my back door without totally giving out of breath. So I was just coming out of the hospital with that diagnosis of AIDS, not HIV, AIDS. which I know mm-hmm. we, we, call, we call it. We call it HIV even now. We call it advanced HIV. Mm-hmm. But at that time, they were calling it AIDS, and not just mm-hmm. AIDS, but they were calling it full-blown AIDS. And I remember going to the doctor uh, that day, and my mom went with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were sitting there in his office, and he came in, and he said, it looks like we have a very sick young man based on the blood work. And I kind of knew that something serious was going on because I had had all these symptoms, you know, with the the shortness of breath Mm -hmm. and tiredness and all of that. And... um, he said, uh, but we're going to get you well. And I asked him, I said, do I have AIDS? And he said, yeah. And my mom said, full-blown AIDS? And, she said, and he said, yes, ma'am, he does, but we're going to get him well. Well, they finally did find the right cocktail for me after I had been in the hospital mm-hmm. for like four weeks. Once they found the right cocktail for me, the doctor said, well, are you ready to go back to work now? I was working at a bank then. And I said, mm-hmm. no, I, I can't go back. I can't go back. And mm-hmm. he, he asked why. I said, the reason I can't go back is because I remember the last night that I worked at the bank, uh, two of my coworkers were sitting out on the smoker's bench. I don't know if you remember those. That's where people on their jobs go out to smoke and all of that. So they were sitting out on the smoker's bench, and uh, and I remember walking by them, and one of them said, poor thing, he has lost so much weight. And that stood in my head, and it, and it just it terrified me, just the thought of having to go back to work. Mm-hmm. And so I, I told my doctor, I said, uh, I, said I, I can't go back, and I told him why. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I go back to school. What are you going to study? I said, well, I'll study broadcast journalism. He said, good for you. Now, at 40 years old, I knew then that studying broadcast journalism was not going to make me rich. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. However, I knew that at that point I had a story to tell because I had been through so many other things that here I am, you know, I beat this, I beat that, I beat this. You know, God has blessed me to be able to get back up and to pursue this childhood dream. I decided to pursue that childhood dream because I knew I had a story to tell, and I knew if I became a news journalist instead of, say, a computer specialist, Mm -hmm. people would listen to me. I felt that journalists had more... I felt that journalists were respected more uh, for the words that they that they used than, say, somebody in computer programming. Mm-hmm. 
So I said, I'll go back to school and I'll be a, a, a news journalist, which, which was always my childhood dream. Uh, and from that point, from the, the day that I entered school, God touched it and he blessed mm-hmm. it. And uh, matter of fact, when I first went back, they didn't want to enroll me because I had reneged on my student loan from all those years ago when I dropped out of school. And uh, so I went to school on a loan. And uh, enrolled, did fantastic, had a fantastic semester, got sick again, went to go enroll again. They wouldn't let me in because I reneged on my loan. Hmm. Went and talked to my advisor at school, and he said, um, don't worry about it. Um, we'll give you a scholarship. And so I went to school the rest of the time on a scholarship. You know, it, it, it almost, it's, you know, it's like, yes, you had gotten really, really sick. And, you know, and the doctor said you had full-blown blown age. But, you know, it was like he said, we're going we're go, you know, to get you better. Because it's almost like from him, from your mother being right there with you, and from deep, somewhere deep in your soul, you knew you had some unfinished business to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. You're so right. You know, I always, I just always knew that there was something greater for me. And I remember even, even, uh, and I have a relationship with God, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I, he and I basically talk kind of like you and I are talking now, you know, I, I, I talk to him and I can hear him whispering things to me. But, um, you know, I remember telling him, you know, unless you have something for me to do, and this was right before I went back to school, unless you have something for for me to do, just take me on home. Mm. And that's when he opened the doors and allowed me to go back to school and blessed everything that I touched in school. I ended up graduating uh, with honors, Phi Theta Kappa, Mm -hmm. and uh, and it didn't stop there. You know, when I started working, he blessed everything that I touched on my job, Mm -hmm. uh, and it ended up with the Edward R. Murrow Award. Mm -hmm. Well, Well, I want to take a break right now and come back and talk a little bit about your work and about your advocacy for people living and for HIV in general. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
And if you're just joining me, we're talking with Lorraine Orlando Children about his life, which is really a, a big part, but then more than in his book, Peeling Back the Layers, A Story of Trauma, Grace, and Triumph. You know, I've talked to you and I've talked with other people who who got that, you know, like you said, then they they called it like full-blown AIDS. And real, it used to be when you heard HIV, it was like a death sentence. And like you said, you had to find, you found, they found the right cocktail for you. And I know it, but you have many people now who have, are living with, I mean, where their, their load is so low, you know, it's undetectable. And as you go out, I mean, and, I, and how, and you're talking to people about your book, how do you find it's like educational for some people still to realize that, yes, you can be infected with HIV, but you can live and go on and, and fulfill your mission in life? Oh, yeah. Uh, I get that a lot. And it's, to me, it's, it used to be surprising, but now it's more common than what you would think. There are still mm-hmm. a lot of people who are struggling and don't re- are not really educated about the disease. Um, HIV is completely preventable. Um, mm-hmm. HU, the main thing that I tell people is to get tested, know your status, because the sooner you learn your status, if you're positive, the sooner that you're diagnosed, the sooner you can start on, on medication. And I strongly advocate for anyone who is sexually active to go and get tested. Testing can save your life. Early diagnosis can save your life. I told you when I tested, when, when I tested for AIDS, full-blown AIDS, um, my T-cell count was three. I was well within the death zone. I could have died at any time. Most people don't even have that luxury of finding out mm-hmm. before it gets to that point. I mean, I was at death's door, but if I had, and and it's not because I had been, I had not been tested. Uh, I had been tested, but I went through a very stressful period that just caused it to to just to just break down to 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 that that load. Um, but the, the best advice that I can give, test, find out your status. If you test positive, start on treatment. And you're more than likely to live a long, long, healthy life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, because I was talking to someone who was saying how it used to be like such a short life expectancy, and now you have people or even living into their 70s. And I, you know, I mean, really long lives because, like you said, they, they got tested, they got on treatment, and, you know, they're living, the life expectancy has just, like, expanded so than what it used to be. And you can go out and you can do all these things, but I think that because of that, and you hear, like, things about 
prep and like this, that you still, like right. you said, there are some people who don't want to talk about it, but, you know, and especially for a young person who figures if I'm, I get or I've got the diagnosis and, and you're not educated on it and you don't know to get it, you're thinking, well, you know, it's not going to get better. This is just it, you know. Let me go live yeah. my life, you know. But here yeah. you are. Now, yeah. Do you find I'm, when you – go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, when, you know, my, my, my main thing is to help to break down these stereotypes and, and, and these stigmas. Mm-hmm. When it comes to HIV AIDS, um, because, you know, so many people are afraid to even go to the doctors because they don't want anyone to see them there. We've got to stop that. We've got to stop mm-hmm. pointing fingers at people uh, and help people to get better. Mm-hmm. When you go in to talk about your book, I mean, because that's a part of your story, but mm-hmm. that's not your whole story. And no. Uh, when, but when you do, you ever find that when you go in and you to talk about your book, that there are some people who want to either zero in on that part of your story, or oh, yeah. come to you afterwards with questions about that because they see you as a resource as to how to live with their diagnosis? Both. Mm. Both. Both. And I absolutely welcome both. Mm-hmm. I love it when people, when people ask questions, and I love it when they come up to me afterwards and ask questions. And it always happens. Every time mm-hmm. I have the opportunity to share my story, uh, it never fails that somebody comes up to me and tells me, thank you for telling my story. You know? Mm-hmm. I've been struggling with this, but just to see you and what you've gone through and where you are today gives me hope and gives me courage. You know, when I first started writing uh, Layers, I had, I had written maybe the first six chapters of it, and I passed it on to one of my colleagues uh, in the news business to read, and she and I would talk at least once a week. And I passed it on to her, and we didn't talk for at least a month. And I'm like, oh, my God, she can't handle the truth. She can't handle the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, after that month, I decided to call her up. I called her up. She didn't answer. But within three minutes, she was calling me back. Mm-hmm. And as she answered the phone, I could hear her crying. I mean, she was crying, boo-hoo tears, you know, the, the snotty kind of cry. <laughs> and uh, she, was, she was crying that cry. And uh, she told me, she said, LaWayne, I just want to thank you for telling my cousin's story. Mm. She said, he didn't die from HIV, although we know he had it. He didn't die from addiction, although we know he was an addict. She said he died from domestic violence. But I know if he had only had someone like you to talk with, he'd be alive today. And that's the reason that I share my story. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, people, people, take, people take little bits and pieces of whatever they hear in this story that may or apply to them or to their loved one or someone they know. And they want to ask questions about, well, how did I deal with it? How did I deal with it? Well, we all deal with things differently, but I can mm-hmm. only tell them how I dealt with them. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, and it is true because, like, I know I, um, a friend of mine read your book. And, and you know, and like just like, like the one you were talking about, it was like they had had a family member. And it was like, if only we had dealt with it, you know, if only we had talked about it, if only we, we had done that. Because she said she saw parts of her family, but she saw ways that where, you know, that there have been time when maybe a word of encouragement or that to know that you had that unwavering love for them would have helped them, you know, just, just hang on, just do it, realize their mission, and or being silent. Now, you know, even though we don't talk about it, how exciting is it that you now have your book is going to another layer. People are talking about it. People are saying, you know, this should be a movie. This maybe should be on. That is, that is exciting because I think like it is. It's something that I can see that would really touch and maybe help some families, help some individuals. But has there been anything like, you know, well, we, we are interested in, but, you know, maybe we need to tone this part down. Because you're very honest about what you went through. No, you know, I'm I'm really excited that uh I've signed with Council Tree Production and uh and and the goal of course is to to get a movie deal out of this whole thing. Um currently we're working on the script uh and trying to secure funding. Mm-hmm. Um but when I when Joel approached me, um he told me that what he loved was the honesty. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he said, I don't see this as a gay book. I don't see this as um, um, any one-sided book. He said, I see this just as a human story. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way that we're, 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 we're focusing it, just as a human story. Because it's really, we know when it, when, it, when it comes down to it, it's all about the human condition. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think this is a, a real-life example of the human condition. I think it shows uh, that regardless of how hopeless things may seem in life, if you believe in yourself and the Lord, you can achieve any dream that you want to. Even if that dream seems impossible, you can still achieve it. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. book, this book is definitely giving hope and uh, um, inspiration and motivation. You know, it lets people know that you can have a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. You know, all true examples of the the human experience. And you know, and I think that the other part, which you know, you're talking about too, but the other thing that's important was, or I believe it was your cousin Cheryl? Mm-hmm. Okay. Who was um, diagnosed right. with HIV AIDS. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and often, like you talk about how it's not just a gay man's disease. And mm-hmm. sometimes, often you'll find people, I, you know, I was talking to um, someone recently about having gone into a church on Women's Day, and they were talking, they had Shirley Ralph come in, and she was talking about women and AIDS. And, mm-hmm. like, there are people there who look like, well, 
we're all good women here, you know. Well, you know, uh-huh. we're not we're not prostitutes or drug addicts, so this or something. Right. But you know what? Women can get you know that that it makes it raises that awareness that here you're talking about how it affected you, but it can affect other members of your family. And again, that goes mm-hmm. back to that getting tested and knowing your status, and that mm-hmm. it's an equal opportunity disease. You know that you can be you can become infected. And I think that, I mean, that, that part, that level of awareness and how, you know, you were just like, why her? You know, why right. her? Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, Cheryl was a beautiful girl, you know, to start off mm-hmm. with. She was beautiful. She was smart. Uh, she and her husband had just married, moved to Atlanta. Uh, she had a great job with Xerox. Uh, he had a good job. Uh, he had his own construction company. Uh, she was living the American dream and uh, went to the doctor. They never could find what was wrong with her. Went to the doctor again, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Finally, one of the brainy doctors at uh, Emory University finally decided to check her for HIV. And the results came back positive, not for HIV, but for, as they were calling it then, AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, full-blown AIDS. And that's when I decided to get tested because I knew that Cheryl couldn't have done half the things that I had done <laughs> in mm-hmm. my life. And I'm like, if this young lady can get it, surely I could get it. And so that's when I went in to get tested, and um, they tested me for HIV at that time. There was a 10-year span from the time I tested HIV positive to the time that I tested with AIDS. And, and there's, there's a reason for that. I, I, I don't know if we have time to get into it, but... Well, we do. Um, okay. Um, and so when I tested positive for HIV, went to the doctor, the only medications that they had out at the time were AZT and maybe a, another one or two. But AZT was the prominent drug that was being used then. So my doctor put me on AZT after three months. It hadn't helped me in any way. It hadn't hurt me in any way. But it was very, very toxic. And so my doctor asked me, he said, well, you know, it's not helping you. It's not hurting you. It is toxic. Would you like to come off of it and we just monitor you? And if we see any changes, then we can restart it. And so I chose to do that. And so for 10 years, they would monitor me like every three months. And Mm -hmm. I remained negative for 10 years. It wasn't until the 10th year, which is usually about 10 years after you have a diagnosis, that you may come down with some, some symptoms. But after the 10th year, that's when um, I had a very stressful situation happen to me uh, with a project that I was working on for the church mm-hmm. and became so stressed out that uh, my body just couldn't take it. My uh, T-cell count, which T-cells are the 
the, the cells that help to fight off diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had dropped to three. And if your T cell count is three, you're basically like well within the death zone. And so it's, it's almost like having one leg in the ground and the other leg on a banana peel. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you're just that close to death. And so um, had it not been for Cheryl, chances are that I may not have ever known that I was even even positive because of the stigma, the shame, because even when I tested, even even when I when I tested, when Cheryl when Cheryl tested and then I tested, I was afraid to go to the Department of Health to get a mm-hmm. test because I didn't want people to see me. You know, I didn't want any because there was such disdain for people who was who were HIV positive at that time. I didn't want I didn't want people to see me walking into the 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 clinic. I didn't want people to see me in the clinic. Um, but you know, I said my life is more important than that, and so I was able to press my way, and I'm so glad that I did. Now, you know, I've used that story because I remember you telling me how you, you parked a ways away from there to walk. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I have used that story, in fact, because um, I was working with some people in Chicago, and they were going to do, they wanted to do testing not only throughout their event, but then they were going to have a program that night. And part of, you know, like if you got tested at one of the places earlier, you could come through. And there was somebody who was there who said, well, you know, I don't see why they just can't go. And he named a clinic. And and somebody was like, well, everybody knows if you go in there what it is. And mm-hmm. I told them that story about how you did it. I said, because the stigma, I said, you know, I know, but you're thinking that, you know, you have to really overcome it. And everybody doesn't have that strength. Some people aren't. And so mm-hmm. it was sort of like sometimes, you know, to recognize that, you you got to hit them where they where you get them you know like but and so they right. were doing it at that but I have used that story about wow. how that that concern you know I said the stigma is real and how you parked away and then you know because you didn't want anyone to see you but you but you still went ahead and did it but a lot of yes. people don't do that you know right right and you know and i'm hoping that we can change that you know because mm-hmm. every day we're opening more drop-in centers you know mm-hmm. centers that don't look like clinics you know it's mm-hmm. kind of like a place where you can just go and hang out and have fun and while you're there you can still get an hiv test or get some condoms mm-hmm. or whatever you need to get mm-hmm. um, more of those are opening around the country and i wish more people would take advantage of them um, but you know, and there and things have really changed now. You know, I'm considered undetectable, mm-hmm. and yeah, and there's a campaign now that's called "You Equals You." Have you seen that? No, I haven't. It's uh, undetectable equals untransmittable, mm. mm-hmm. and so since I'm undetectable, the chances of me passing the disease on to my sexual partner is zero. Mm-hmm. Zero. That's a huge deal from mm-hmm. when I tested back in 1991. You know, we're at the point now where 
you can still have HIV, but have so little of the virus in your system that it can't even be detected, and that you can have sex with someone with your status of HIV and not even pass it on to people. Mm-hmm. But you have to be on treatment to get to that point. You know, it's not a death sentence. People still, you know, want to say it's a death sentence, but it's not a death sentence at all. Well, you know, here we have a program that's called Status Sexy because that's what they're saying. Like, Ooh, if you know, I like that. I, I know. <laughs> like they're about not only knowing what your status is, knowing what it means, knowing, like, if you're at the point where it's undetectable and you might not be able to transmit it, but if you know your status and about, they talk about prep, they talk about still have, you know, mm-hmm. condoms, they talk about every, everything mm-hmm. from it. And so they, they sort of take it to that point to talk about, you know, hey, knowing your status, you know, it's not a, a stigma, it's not a death sentence. It is, it is a way, I mean, hey, I know my status, I'm sexy, you know, I can get out there, you know, and I, I can live it. my, and you can live your life. You I know? love that. I, I mm-hmm. absolutely love that because, see, the, the truth of the matter is we all have a status. Mm-hmm. We either, we're either negative or positive, but in both we can be sexy. I like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michelle, I like that. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know. Uh, I, in fact, I've been talking to you because I want to have them on the show later on because it's like, and it sort of came up like, well, how do you, how do we take this and like, you know, don't be, you know, have fun knowing your status, that's a sexy thing. And they, and they have it, they have brochures, they have all that. And a lot of people, I mean, it's changing the dialogue about it. And I think that that's a lot of what we, we have to, like you said, there's still a lot of stigma, but there's still... It's, it's different than what it is. You know, science and medicine has helped. Mm-hmm. There's ways that you can live. I met a, a great couple who both met when they both had been diagnosed. Um, one of them had just, she had lost her partner. I mean, and this was a, it's not just a gay thing. She had lost her mm-hmm. husband and didn't realize that he had had uh, AIDS until he died. And when they came out mm-hmm. and told her, and then she went and got tested and she did too. And, through the program, through getting treatment, and they kept seeing each other. I forget how many years they've been married now. <laughs> they've got kids. They've got blended family. Mm-hmm. And they're leading their lives. And it's like, how mm-hmm. do you, you have to get that out there and get that, that across and to do that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that that, wow. you know, and when I look at people like you, I look at, at, at what you've done and other people, I mean, that's what it means. I mean, it's about life. And I think yes. that, you know, and I think that the other thing about besides, you know, I talk about not only the, the unwavering love of your mother, but, but your, your great faith, because you knew you were here for a reason. And yes. you believed, like you said, if you don't have anything for me, then, hey, you know, I'm ready to go. But you believed and you believed in that. You yes. never gave up on your faith. And you know, right. and that's the other thing that you have many in our community who have given up on their faith, but you've yes. been able to maintain it and, and keep it. And you're very strong in that. Is that a lot from how you were raised or in those dark times, 
you know, did you always have a church that was accepting? Did you have to find a church where you were welcome and affirmed to at some point in time? Or was it just like something that was deeply ingrained in you from your family's belief that sort of carried you through in those darkest hours? I think it started with my family. Uh, mm-hmm. I've always had the support of my family, regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've had some some strong talking to, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I've always had the support of my family. Always, I've always known that I could go to my family and discuss any anything. And ironically, gay never really came up in my family, mm-hmm. even though even though I was raised in a holiness church, Church of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by some standards, is 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 probably pretty tough on the the gay community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never had any problems. Never had any problems at church. However, once I tested positive, I did seek out uh, an affirming church. Started mm-hmm. attending metropolitan community churches. And mm-hmm. now I still attend an affirming church. Uh, I'm with United Church of Christ. But, uh, yeah, it started with my family, I think, because my family was so loving and supportive that, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't judge like that. And uh, I remember I won a contest uh, based on my book and my uncle that helped to raise me. I remember him writing something on Facebook, and it had everything. I mean, everything was in it. <laughs> uh, gay, uh, the tragic death and loss, all that stuff that you read, you know, about mm-hmm. the cocaine addiction and all of that, all of that was in it. And I remember my uncle, who was an elder in the church, saying, that's what I'm talking about. I will let nothing separate me from the love of God. Mm. And uh, and that really meant the world to me, to have that kind of support from my family. Mm. And even to this day, I have that kind of support from my family, on my mom's side and on my dad's side. Mm. So I now, feel very, very blessed. Mm-hmm. You said you had met your father four times. Did he, was he aware that you were gay? And no. Did, was he alive to see this book? No. Uh, mm-hmm. No. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope, wasn't alive to see this book. And uh, I have a cousin on my dad's side who is gay. And uh, she had been having problems with her grandmother. And uh, she and her girlfriend are coming up to visit me soon. And they're bringing my aunt, which is her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't know how this was going to work out. But I think because my aunt, which is her grandmother, has had the opportunity to see me interact with my partner, my lover, mm-hmm. um, she has kind of changed her mind about some things. Um, she, in fact, she, she actually told my cousin, you know, because they had, they had the, the conversation, you know, we're going to be driving I'm taking my girlfriend. We're going to stay here. We're going to sleep together. You'll have <laughs> your own room. You know, just the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. Um, because my aunt 
at one time had a big problem, but since she's been around me, she says that uh, she started changing her mind about things. Mm. And so that's another thing that I wanted this book to do. I wanted it to engage engage us in conversations that we never, ever talk about. And that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take our second break here. Um, if you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Lowane Childry. He's the author of Peeling Back the Layers, A Story of Trauma, Grace, and Triumph. And we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. You know, one of the things that I also recognize about you, and then some of the things that I, that I often when I'm talking to people, you know, even if for LGBTQ people who are estranged from their parents, um, there are certain things that are, are put into you as a child. And, you know, even though your parents might not agree with you, later on, if they look at you, they're going to see that you're the fruit of that seed. And, mm-hmm. you know, clearly from, you know, your grandparents, your mother, uh, you know, they, they put that foundation in you and it, and it come forth in, in all of your life. And when you go in and they say things like, oh, you're just like your dad, and there are things like that, that must be kind of, even though he wasn't there, there was a path that, you know, how nice is that, you know, but they're not, they're seeing you as a member of that family, not, oh, here comes Gay Wayne, you know, we didn't do that, you right. know, but they're seeing you as, as they see you as that whole person. Right, right, you're right, you know, I am my aunt's only nephew on my dad's mm-hmm. side, I'm their only mm-hmm. nephew, and uh I'll tell you, man, when I go around there, it's just like I'm royalty. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they are always so excited to see me. I'm excited to see them. Um, Whenever I go to my aunt's house, whenever I go to Birmingham now, basically, the first stop that I make is at my aunt's house, Um, my dad's sister. Mm -hmm. And uh, she feeds me. Uh, if she if she has not cooked, she will cook. I cannot <laughs> leave until she finishes. Mm-hmm. I have to eat. Uh, I have to see her on the way out of town, and I have to touch base with her while I'm in town. 
Mm-hmm. So, and no, 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 no quick sneak in visits, huh? Yeah. No, 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 no. And uh, mm-hmm. I think this last time that I, I, I did sneak into town, but I, I wanted to go by there and see her, and I did, and uh, she was my first stop. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I said, nobody knows I'm in town. Nobody knows I'm here, but you. And uh, <laughs> and 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 so she was okay with it. But then I felt guilty because she and my mom's sister talk, and so mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's so unfair, you know, for me to come to town and tell her she's the only one who knows because I know they like to discuss things. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know. I lost a lot of time with them, but now that we're together, it's just like we were never apart. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you've had a big impact, not only through your book, but on the community. And, I, you know, I know that the Alabama Community College System, they gave out an award in your name. Are mm-hmm. they still doing that? Or was it just a one-time thing? I think it was just a one-time thing. Did you meet? I, I don't know. Did you meet the person who got the award? I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very, and, and, very, very deserving young man. Uh-huh. And have you stayed in yeah. touch with them? You know, I begged him to let's stay in contact, but we lost mm-hmm. contact. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that everything went well for him. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh-huh. But how did that feel? You know, I mean, here's your, one of your, one of the places that you had gone to school was really one of the starting stones to on your way before you went back. Mm-hmm. And to have a scholarship given to a school senior, how did that feel, you know, in your name? Uh, Michelle, that was probably one of the best feelings ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost undescribable, you know, to be recognized by um, these people that I look up to, teachers, mm-hmm. instructors, um, deans, um, for them to award me with this this gift. Uh, uh, amazing is is all mm-hmm. I can say. Pretty amazing, yeah. And I love the idea of being able to give back, and that's that's what I'm really hoping that will be my legacy in life: mm-hmm. uh, giving back, paying it forward. And I think the scholarship with the Alabama Community College System, which is five thousand dollars, by the way, which mm-hmm. is a lot of a lot of money. Um, I think that's a great start, but I want to do even more. You know, I would love it if I could have a foundation that gave scholarships every year, every semester. Mm-hmm. And that's my goal. Mm, wow. Okay, that, that is, I mean, really, because, you know, you're laying those, those foundations of it. There's ways that, that you're doing it, but to have that foundation to be able to to do that and to reach back and to help, you know, the young Lawane or Lawana, yes. you know, yes. And, yes. And, you know and, and to pull them along the way. So yes. 
Besides writing your new book and getting that negotiating and getting the details made out to make this one, put this one on film, I know you do motivational speaking, but what else are Mm -hmm. you up to these days? Oh, wow, these days. uh, (laughs) Doing a lot of of speaking engagements Mm -hmm. and uh, working diligently with uh, ASOs across the country and uh, also working closely with the Nashville Ryan White Planning Consortium. Mm. I'm an I'm an executive uh, member of that council, mm. and so yeah, we've got a lot of things going on. Mhm. Mhm. Wow. When you're are you speaking? When you're speaking with for National Ryan White, what you know? I think that what exactly is that entails? You know, it's funny. There was a time when I think that everyone knew who Ryan White was. But I was at a a center and I was talking about, we were talking about things that people were talking about. Well, you know, we don't get Ryan White. They weren't getting the funding for Ryan, the Ryan White Act. But, you know, but there were some people who were like, you know, had that sort of look like Ryan White. I mean, have, Mm -hmm. and you wonder, like, have we gotten that far away from that? Or are we just not talking about HIV, AIDS, and, and what's out there? Right. With Ryan White, what we do as with the board is we mm-hmm. advocate funding. We advocate funding to state service organizations around the state that help people with housing, that help people with uh, transportation, that helps people with medications, that help people get to their doctor's visits. All of that stuff is entailed in Ryan White funding. Well, you know, I hate to get political, but you know, you know, we've had a change in administration. And mm-hmm. does has that amplified the need for the work that you do? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Most definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we uh we definitely need more advocates in this field. Mm-hmm. That's always been the case, but even more so now. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, because of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Because I know up here there's been a couple of organizations that have merged because it was like, well, to be separate, it was like they were competing yeah. for the same dollars and that pot was getting yes. smaller. So, yes. you know. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I work with a group here called Mashup Nashville. And it's a con- conglomeration of several ASOs throughout this region and uh, mainly focus on research. <clears throat> Excuse me. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly focusing on research, um, but yeah, it's so important now because everybody's competing for the same dollars, mm-hmm. and you have to be thinking ahead with new ideas just to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, a lot of ASOs are closing up. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's just it's just incredible, but you know, so advocacy is important. Mm-hmm. And if anybody mm-hmm. out there is interested, I, I would definitely suggest that they reach out to some of their service organizations mm-hmm. and uh, vol- even volunteer. Mm-hmm. So, in in some ways, like you've become an educator, and, and a lot of it through your book, you're an educator, you're an advocate. 
I mean, I'm, I dare say that for many, you're a role model of, of how you can get through because whether it's, I mean, even if you're, someone doesn't have that, carry that HIV burden, there are many people who are struggling with, with drug addiction. I mean, you're, as to how you can overcome all of these, what would be the message that you would say to someone who didn't have your faith, who didn't have your mother's love, who didn't have your deep conviction that you were meant to do something. If you walked into a room of young men and women, and what would you say to them? Well, you know, I think I'd say something like we, we all have problems. Mm. You know, some only seem worse than others. Mm-hmm. However, I'd have to... I'd have to tell you that uh, no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how bad people say you are or even how bad you think you are, God still loves you. Mm. He always has. He always will. And not only does he love us, he has a plan for us. And that, that plan is generally our purpose or our passion for life. And once you find your purpose or your passion, the possibilities are are really endless. Well, I know, but that's uh, that's what I get from you, and I think that that's the the inspiration you know that I get from you. And I always love to share things with you. And I I look when you often put things up there on your on, you know, you post things that always makes me think. And or sometimes there are days when I really need that one thing to sort of lift me up. And there, uh, and there you are, and it's like he's thinking what I'm thinking today. <laughs> <laughs> he's thinking Thank what you. I'm thinking today. You know, I, I, so I love I love you for that because that's really you know I post things for myself, but I post things for other people too. Mm-hmm. So I, I I really that means a lot to me. Mhm. You know, it it really does. I mean, you know, and like I said, we met, and it was like one of those connections. I often tell people because they say, well, how do you meet people? I said, well, I was, and I was talking about, and I'd be talking about, well, how did you meet Luane? I said, well, he was there. Something that also that I can relate to, you know, that, that writing your book and then, you know, having your box of books and going around and you're selling them and talking mm-hmm. to them. And I said, mm-hmm. there he was. I said, and there was just something about you. And in the brief time that we talked to each other, that I went and found an ATM machine and got the money so I could come back and mm-hmm. get your book. And, yep. um, and you know, and you wrote, and I, and I, I have it here, and it says, Michelle, fire and ink brought us together, but love will keep us together. And, wow. you know, and I will say that over the years, I mean, I think that we knew, we were sister and brother from other mothers from the get. But over the years, that love that we have for one another has kept us together. And I, I really value your friendship. Oh, wow, Michelle. I love you. I value you. I appreciate you. Wow. You got me grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> because I feel the same way. I feel the mm-hmm. same way about you. You know, mm-hmm. it was just, it was just, you know, you hear the cliche, you had me at hello. <laughs> you had me, you had me at hello. So. Oh. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I Paula, totally feel you. Mm-hmm. Well, Wayne, this is uh, another of many conversations that you and I will always have. I want to thank yes. you for taking the time to talk to me today and making me feel envious of that 60-degree, you know, Nashville <laughs> weather as I look it's at the pretty. snowflakes come down out here in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we just had snow Saturday, so uh-huh. anything can happen. Oh, okay. All right. Yep. Well, that, well, again, I want to thank you for being with me. Um, I know you, you will keep me up updated on, on whatever's going to happen. I look forward to seeing you looking ever so dapper as you walk that red carpet. Feeling <laughs> <laughs> back to layers, you know. Oh, boy. Michelle, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Okay, and I will talk to you really soon. Okay. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Luane Orlando Childry, author of Peeling Back the Layers, a story of trauma, grace, and triumph. I hope you'll add this book to your summer reading list. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.